If you enjoyed that and saw the spiritual significance related to the passage we're going to be in today, that was my idea. If you didn't like it, it was Clay's. So, 1 Samuel chapter 8, which is the point of this chapter. We will serve somebody. Uh, we will give our allegiance to someone, and our only hope is to give our allegiance to Christ, and so that's where we're headed today. I'm going to read uh, verses 19 through 20 to begin our time. Uh, we continue our study through the book of 1 Samuel, uh, where we're talking about the king that we need. And that's exactly what 1 Samuel teaches us. Um, it fits in the theme of the Bible that there must be a king, and you must serve a king, and you must give your life over to a king. And the question is, who is going to be that king? Is it going to be you? Uh, is it going to be someone else, or is it going to be Jesus? 1 Samuel chapter 8, I'll begin reading in verse 19. If you would, stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect Word. Hear the Word of Christ. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations. And that our king may judge us and go before us and fight our battles. Let's pray. Oh God, that is where our hearts want to go today. We long for a different king so often, whether it be ourselves or others, political systems, allegiances to organizations. We long for rule and reign. We long for security in kingdoms. And you have so graciously provided us this glorious kingdom of your Son that meets all of our needs. And so God, I pray that we would serve Him today. We would give our hearts over to Him no matter who we are here today. Our trust and our allegiance would be to Jesus and no one else. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Maybe see it. That's just the way he is. I remember very vividly talking to one of my very good friends about his brother, who I had just informed my friend that his brother had come to faith in Christ, that his brother had decided he was going to turn and follow Christ and give give his life over to Jesus and he would be baptized and become a member of our church. And I thought my friend would be excited about this and he just looked at me and laughed. Looked at me like I was some sort of fool and just sort of laughed and said, well, that's just the way he is. I thought, that's just the way he is? Your brother just came to faith in Christ and that's the way you're responding to me. You see, his brother had been in and out of a lifestyle full of drugs and alcohol. I think even at one time he was homeless. Uh, he would have jobs that he would eventually lose for being just uh, irresponsible. Uh, and he had gone through this his whole life, in and out of, uh, of addiction, uh, with a job, without a job, with a home, without a home, from city to city. And... My friend just couldn't believe that he was playing this game with me, a pastor. 
Uh, he came to me and wanted to know how he could get his life right. And I told him, you need to believe in Jesus. You need to follow Christ. And, and, and he said, well, that's what I want to do. And, and he, he decided he was going to follow Christ, to trust in Jesus. And so I rebuked my friend very uh, clearly that day. I called him the older brother from the parable of the prodigal son. I said, you're just like the older brother, you self-righteous twit. Your brother just came to faith in Christ and you, you don't want to believe it. You're doubting what God is doing. And I determined, okay, from that point on, I'm just going to invest in this guy. I gonna, I'm going to prove to my friend that this is real and genuine in his brother's life. And so I personally said I'm going to disciple him and, and I would meet with him. I even, I even took him on a mission trip with me. And sure enough, of all the times for him to flip out and go back to his old ways was on a mission trip. We were having a conversation just about the way he carried himself and how to be a leader, and, and, and just out of nowhere he got angry, and he left the mission trip. We were in Grand Isle, Louisiana, the, the furthest south you can go, I think, in the United States, and he just disappeared because he was angry. And then I think... 24 hours later, he showed back up. He had shaven, and, and he was going to get his act together again. And this went on week after week, month after month, until one time he met with me, and he said, I'm going to, to the army. I'm going, I'm, and I thought, okay, this would probably be good for you. Rules, and you're going to have to submit to other people, whether you like it or not, as hard as it can be. Uh, this, this could be good for you. But I warned him all the struggles that he'd had that it probably won't be good for you. And then sure enough, a few months later, he'd gone AWOL and he was living in Canada. And, and it was just that sort of cycle with him. And, and, and I'll never forget my friend's words that day. I reminded of my friend of this just a few weeks ago. That's just the way he is. And this guy is still that way. There's this cycle of sin, repentance, I'm going to get my life right, and it just doesn't seem to work out for him. And when we read the Bible, that's exactly the way we feel about Israel. If you read the Bible, you, you, you look in on Israel, and they seem to get their act together. Just a few weeks ago in 1 Samuel chapter 7, they are repenting of their sin. They are weeping. They are mourning. They're confessing their sin. They're turning from their idols. They're turning to the Lord. There is this moment of genuine repentance. And you look in on that, and if you know the whole story, you want to say, well, that's just the way they are. Because when we get to chapter 8, here we go again. We're right back into this rebellion we're right back into this uh, um, sin. We're, we're right back into this cycle again. And they just can't seem to get their life right. That's just the way they are. Notice chapter 8, verse 1. We see them again longing for another king. Notice verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Now, some time has passed since the, the moment Samuel led the nation in repentance. But Samuel's getting older. His ministry's growing. He, he sends his sons out to be judges over Israel. Now, remember what judge means. We, we see in the book of Judges, God appoints leaders 
who lead the people of God. The, the people of God sin, the enemies of God overcome them, and then there is a judge on behalf of God that delivers them from their enemies. And, and Samuel has given a new dynamic to what a judge is. He is an appointed leader in Israel, but, but God's giving us a picture of a priest who leads the people, a, a prophet priest who judges the people. And, and so Samuel is almost in this pastoral role over the whole nation of Israel. He, 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 he leads them in the law, and when they violate the law, they confess their sin, and he leads them in repentance and restoration with God, and that goes on and on and on, and now he's had to send out his sons to do the same thing. But notice his sons. The name of his firstborn was jo Joel, and the name of the second was Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. And notice, though, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside again. They took bribes and perverted justice. And, and we, get, we say, here we go again. That's just the way they are. Remember how the book started with Eli's sons, the corrupt priest? They were having uh, acts of sexual immorality in, in the tabernacle. They were stealing food from the people of God that they were bringing to offer as sacrifices. These were the priests of Israel. And now we see Samuel's sons. Samuel is not even immune to this cycle of sin, even in his family. His sons have turned corrupt. The word says, turned aside. Literally, they have trespassed the law, who they're supposed to be. They have turned off course. They are accepting bribes from the people. Maybe they're called to, to mediate disputes, and it's whoever can give them the most money. Maybe they are accepting offerings and, and even offering forgiveness depending on what they get out of it, the meal they get out of it, the, 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 the resources they can get from the people. But they are corrupt just like Eli's sons. Then notice verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel, the leaders over all the tribes of Israel, they come together and notice they come to Samuel and notice where they come, Ramah. This is Samuel's hometown. This is where he's setting up for retirement. And, and, and they say, we've got to talk to the prophet of God because this system of prophet and priest, it's not working for us. And, and he's old and he's about to fall over dead and we're going to be left with his sons again. And his sons are corrupt and we don't want that. And it all seems very spiritual. It, it all seems uh, even noble on their part. Notice verse 5. And they said, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And so they say, We don't need a prophet priest anymore. And your sons can't do the job. And in Ramah, remember where the story began? Hannah, who is barren, she's asking God for a child. Here, Israel, they find themselves in the same place. But what are they asking for? They're asking for a king. God had given a prophet. He had answered the ask of Hannah there in Ramah. And now he's going to answer the ask of Israel here in Ramah. But Ramah is a place of weeping. This isn't a good thing. They're asking for a king, notice, to judge us like the nations. We want a king who will lead us in the same way you're leading us, Samuel. 
But all the other nations, they have men. They have pharaohs. They have leaders who lead them into battle. And there's some security in that. Samuel, you're old. It's time to retire. You've had a great run. Here's a watch. Now give us a king. Give us a king to rule over us. Now, first of all, asking for a king isn't necessarily bad. The whole Bible is driven toward a king. Actually, Adam in the garden was created to be a king in the garden. To be created in the image of God means he's given the authority of God to rule in the garden on behalf of God. And he was a bad king. And so the whole Bible is, is, is pulling us to a good king. And so, the, so asking for a king isn't bad. It's not even wrong. But notice they say, like the nations. Israel feels left out. Now, Israel was to be a unique nation. As you looked at all the other nations on the earth, they had pharaohs, they had emperors, they had leaders, who, men who even they worshipped to, to, to protect these nations. Israel could stand back and say, we don't need a man. We have God as our king. God takes care of us. He fights our battles for us. We don't need an emperor. We don't need a pharaoh. We have God as king. They were to be a unique covenant people that said the God of heaven and earth is our king. And that's what they're rejecting here. Asking for a king isn't bad. It's the rejecting of God as king that is their sin. Longing for a king is actually necessary for us. We are to long for a king. The problem is we long for a different king. We long for a king other than God. That's the story of the Bible. Rejecting God's authority. Rejecting His power as the ultimate ruler in our life. And one of the things the Bible also does for us is over and over it shows incapable leadership. Incapable kings. We even get to this point and we thought, man, I thought Samuel was a great guy. I mean, I thought he was this powerful, anointed prophet of God. And you mean to tell me his sons? You mean to tell me his sons are wicked? You mean to tell me Samuel has a dysfunctional family? Samuel, the prophet of God? The one that, that Hannah asked for? The one given over to Israel in this way? He is corrupt? The Bible shows us again and again that if we trust in any other leader other than God himself we will end up brokenhearted. And some of us know that personally. Some of the people that have hurt you the most in life are those that were supposed to be leading you, protecting you, providing for you. This, this is why coaches, pastors, teachers, leaders in society, parents, bosses... That they're often known for the, the greatest hurt, the greatest disappointment, the greatest abuses in our lives. And if you are a leader, you, you even feel that weakness as a leader. When you have responsibility that is, that's placed upon you for other people, and you are more aware in those moments of your weakness than ever. I'm responsible for these people. And at times you feel like you're going to break in half. And the point is... No human, no sinner, no person can ever serve as king. 
And yet we are always longing for the the next leader, the next king, the next person to, to lead the charge for us. That's why the next coach and the next pastor and the next president and the next governor is always going to be the better leader. And we're always longing for something better. And that is the sin of Israel. They think there's something better than God leading them. And and here's the point. Even the best leaders live flawed lives and eventually die. What is the sermon in Acts that Peter is preaching? You You know, we've had good runs of kings as Israel. There are some we can look back on that were great. Think about David. He killed a giant. Think about David brought prosperity and security to Israel. But Peter says, David is dead and gone. You can go over to to the gravesite down at the Jerusalem cemetery and all the king's bones are laid there. You can go look at them. They're dead. And so the greatest leaders we know live flawed lives and eventually die. That's why we will always be desperate for a king until we totally surrender to Jesus as king. That's why some of us are so hopeless when we think about government today. Your your hopelessness and despair when you think about society and government and structures and who's going to be in office and this administration and that, that, the next administration. You are scared to death to the extent you have surrendered to Jesus as king. Because when you surrender to Jesus as king, there's never a time to be hopeless. Because Jesus is the final authority. He is the final ruler. And so we submit to Him and we have hope no matter what's going on in the world. And you will never have this joyful hope in a king, in a ruler, in in those who are appointed over you until it is Jesus that you surrender to. Notice verse 7. This is shocking. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people. Now, that's scary. Now for us, we live in a culture where we want to be the voice that everybody obeys. And if the people get together and they have a voice, you should obey it. That's right. That's not right in the Bible. It's not right for the prophet of God to obey the voice of the people. that's That's not right. So what is God doing here? He's giving them over to their sin, which is scary, which should be shocking to us. And notice He says, For they have not rejected you. They're rejecting you as the prophet. But ultimately, that's not who they're rejecting. They have rejected me from being king over them. This is worse than you could ever imagine, Samuel. You're going to be fine. You're going to go off and you're going to have this great legacy. Have two books in the Bible with your name. It's going to be great for you. Like you, you have a great legacy, but here's the deal. Israel doesn't. And once again, they're rejecting my word, which means they're rejecting me as their king. But notice their rejection in light of, verse 8, according to all the deeds that they have done. He, God says they're rejecting me even in spite of all they've done to me. From the day I brought them out of Egypt, even into this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. He says, Samuel, don't be shocked. This is just what they do. 
This is just who they are. And they've done it time and time again. Remember Samuel when I delivered them from slavery in Egypt? I, I destroyed Pharaoh. I, I made Pharaoh look like a fool. I humiliated all the gods of Egypt. I brought them out of Egypt. They were slaves. I brought them across the Red Sea. We got into the wilderness, Samuel, and you know what they started saying? We want to go back to Pharaoh. There was food in Egypt. We're out here eating manna. And Pharaoh was a much better leader than you, Moses. Can we go back to Egypt? They keep doing this. This is just who they are. Despite all that I've done for them, I rescue them. I forgive them over and over and over again. And what do they keep doing? They keep forsaking me and serving other gods. Now, the Old Testament sums up, if we look at that phrase, forsaking me and serving other gods, as spiritual adultery. I've committed myself to them. I've covenanted myself to them. And what do they do? They act like harlots. They serve other gods. This is just who they are. This is what they do. And it's a picture of our own heart before the gospel. It's a picture of our heart, my heart, your heart before the grace of God. That's just who we are. That's what we do. And yet God's love and His mercy and His kindness keep tracking us down over and over and over again. God has a track record with Israel. You sin against me. I'm going to punish you, but I'm eventually going to restore you. I'm going to bring you to the land. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to be a faithful husband even amidst your spiritual adultery. I'm going to keep being faithful to you, faithful to you, despite all their deeds. So don't be shocked, Samuel. You're experiencing this on a personal level, but this is just who they are. And it's the nature of our own sin. We reject God, and in rejecting God in our hearts, we're committing the same sort of adultery. Think about today. You have the cross, the shed blood of Jesus for your sins. You have a resurrection. You have the promise of a kingdom sealed in blood for you that is unshakable and cannot be taken away from you. And so the question for us today is why would we choose other gods? Why would we give our allegiance to anything else? Why would we give ourselves over to other kings? Why would we give ourselves over to fleeting pleasure? And the point God is making here is even as Israel chased after other gods, I will keep chasing after them. That's a point he's going to make. I will continue to be faithful to the ones who are faithless to me. And notice verse 9 continues. Now then... Obey their voice. Now, that phrase is used all the way through to prove a point. They want authority. Ultimately, they're asking for a king, but they want to be king. They want to be their own kings at the end of the day. He says, only you shall warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said this, this will be the ways of the king who reign over you. Now, the language here is really strong. It's almost a harsh reign. And he's going to be able to describe what this harsh reign looks like. Notice, 
These will be the ways of the king who reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And so what, are, what is this new king going to do? He's going to make you slaves to his military. You're going to be used for his protection. God is the one who protects Israel. God, is, God doesn't use Israel for his protection, but that's what your kings will do. And notice he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, some to plow the ground and to reap his harvest and to make implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. And so again, he will use your sons for his military, but notice he also throws in there, your sons will be slaves on your land. This king's going to rule over you, he's going to reign over you, but you're going to be slaves. Notice verse 13. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. They will be used for His commerce. This is all about Him. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards, and He will give them to His ser servants. Now remember Israel, the, 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 when they hear the language of land, this is their land. They are to be a people of the land that God has given them this land to them. And now someone else is going to take over the land. It's going to, he's going to treat the land of Israel as if it is his. And the people of Israel are going to be his slaves. And he will take a tenth of your grain. Tenth, which is to be given over to the Lord. He will take it and of your vineyards. And he will give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants and female servants, the best of your young men and donkeys, and he will put them to work. And he will take the tenth of your flock, and shall be, you shall be his slaves. And so what's going to happen? This king is going to take God's people. He's going to take God's land. He's going to take God's protection, God's provision. He's going to put it all in his hands, and the people of Israel will be slaves. Samuel's warning them of this. But, but notice the emphasis throughout. He will take. He will take. He will take for his own. And that is the nature of any king, actually any other leader other than God himself. To lead you, a king to rule, a leader to provide for you, they have to take from you. They have to. As soon as they do anything for you, as soon as any other king other than God does something for you, he's already deficient in and of himself because he's not self-sufficient. He's not God. And so to take care of you, he has to take from you. Rulers, they have to defeat you and they have to take your land to do good for you. Politicians, they need you to elect them so they can serve you. Your employers, they need your work so they can take care of you. Government needs your tax money so they can take care of you. Jesus needs nothing from you to take care of you. That's God's point here. You want another king? After all I've done for you, I give and I give and I give and I give and I'm the only one who can give because I'm God and I'm self-sufficient. I don't need anything from you. And now you want a king? All other kings have to take from you to take care of you. And Jesus doesn't. Jesus can save you and he doesn't need to make you into a slave to get something in return. Actually, Jesus is so self-sufficient what does Philippians chapter 2 tell us he did? He took on flesh, he became a man, but what else did he do? 
He humbled himself as a slave. He is so sufficient, so powerful. He lacks nothing, therefore he can slave for you. He can say, I came not to be served, but to serve you. The picture of washing his disciples' feet. He can slave for you. Why? He needs nothing from you. He needs nothing from you. And that's the only way he can save you. If God needs something from you, he can't save you. When, when God makes you a Christian, you believe the gospel. And then all of a sudden, you think, I've got to pay him back for that. If that's the gospel, we're all hopeless. Because all we have is from him anyway. He is self-sufficient. We use this illustration some around here. God is a mountain spring, not a cattle trough. Now, what do you do when you drink out of a cattle trough? Which I know a lot of you do regularly. It's a joke. You, you drink out of the trough, and what do you have to do? You have to fill it back up. The, the water trough to take care of you or your horses or whatever drinks out of it, needs to be refilled, replenished. The mountain spring doesn't. And so if you came to the mountain spring and you stuck your head in and you drank, and then you said, now let me go down to the watering trough and get a bucket because I took some out of the mountain spring and i got to fill it back up, that's disrespectful to the mountain spring. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, what does God say? Just come and drink. You don't have to fill this back up. I'm self-sufficient. I don't need anything for you. I don't need your good works. I don't need your stuff to dump back in. No, I am self-sufficient. And it's the point he's proving about all other kings, all other leaders, even the relationships in our life that we make king. He's saying they can't take care of you. They can't provide for you because they need from you. Some of us feel that way in relationships we're in right now. You, you would say, that person is draining me dry. I give, and I give, and I give, and I get nothing in return. They're a watering trough. Actually, the best relationships you have are broken cisterns. And they cannot give you the happiness you want. Only Jesus can. Ultimately, only Jesus can provide that for you. So your parents can't be ultimate king in your life. They can't be. They're insufficient kings. Your spouse can't be ultimate king in your life. They are an insufficient king. They, they, they will run dry. And, and if you are constantly taking and taking and thinking they're going to give me something that's going to make me happy, no, God is telling you they're insufficient. And that's why the only way to have meaningful relationships is to be full of Jesus, full of the gospel. So you can go into marriage and say, I can give, and I can give, and I can give, and I don't expect anything in return. I can give, and I can give, and that is the nature of true love. And only Jesus has modeled that love because He is self-sufficient, and He lacks nothing. And so when we are full of Jesus, full of the gospel, we give to our spouse, and we don't expect anything in return because we're not making them king. Your kids can't be king, or you're going to be miserable. They can't. They're insufficient. And so many of us go into that, that relationship with our kids and we're expecting to get something back out of it. 
I'm going to pour my life into this person and I'm going to get something back. Just a little thank you. Just, just a little Facebook post on Father's Day of how great I am. Just give me something back. And we're constantly disappointed because they're insufficient. That's why you should constantly tell your kids, I'm insufficient. I can't be your king. And even confessing sin to your kids is such a great thing because they see you need Jesus too. And the only way they're going to be happy is if Jesus is king. They can't look to you for everything. And if you wire that relationship up where they are looking to you for everything, then they're going to be miserable and you're going to be miserable and you're going to be disappointed in yourself. No, only Jesus can be king. Notice we continue, verse 18. And in that day you will cry out because you're king. Did you get that? You're going to be given this king. He's going to make you miserable. You're going to be slaves. And you're going to cry out to me because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself. Notice this. Scary. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. How scary is that? God is saying to them, okay, this is a crucial point in your history. And you're making a decision to have another king. I'm going to give you what you want. And it's not going to end well for you. Because there's the day when you're going to run back to me and I will not answer you. And notice the people. gets even darker for them. They refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. And notice they said, no! Now that's a strong no. In your English Bibles, it's no with an exclamation point. It is really strong. You imagine them standing up and chanting and yelling and screaming at Samuel, the prophet of God. No! We don't, we don't want God as king anymore. We want our own king. We want a king for ourselves. And they get even, even more detailed here. We want to be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. There. There's where we get to the point. We want a man who can lead us in battle and can protect us from our enemies. And what they're saying here is we want to go back to fighting our own battles. We, we want to stand on our own. We, 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 want to, we, we want to have a king who will deliver us from our enemies that we can raise up and put on our shoulders and bring back to battle. We, we want a flesh and blood warrior who, will do, who, who, who we can champion. Like the nations. I mean, right now, all we have to say is we got this box, the Ark of the Covenant, and we rolled it out, and we made that mistake one day. But, but we don't really have a, a person that we can exalt as our king who fights our battles for us. Now, remember what God had told them? If you obey me, I will fight your battles for you. And he has all the way throughout. If you trust me, I will be with you, and I will place you in the land. And his point to Israel is if you would be reconciled to me, if you would trust me, you don't need a king. You have the Lord who created everything to fight your battles for you. You, you have the Lord who, who made heaven and earth, who goes to war for you. I am a warrior for you. And, and you don't need a king in that way. Notice Samuel, verse 21. When he heard all the words of the people, 
he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. Now, up until this point, it's very important to understand this. Samuel is a prophet, meaning he declares the word to the people on behalf of God, but he's also a priest who stands on behalf of the people to God. So he stands in the middle of the people and he mediates as a priest on behalf of the people before God and on behalf of God before the people. But notice what happens here. And the Lord said to Samuel again, Obey their voice and make them a king. Give them a king. And notice, And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Now, that seems like, let's just break this up and we'll talk about it later. But remember at the end of the last chapter, what is Samuel doing? He is going from city to city to city. He is repent, he's preaching repentance and he is bringing about reconciliation to God. Here, what is Samuel saying? Just go away. Go away, it's over. There's no hope for you. Samuel is declaring to the people, I am no longer going to mediate for you. You're fools. You're fools. He throws his hands up and he says, that's just what they do. That's just who they are. I had a good run, but it's over. That's just who they are. And here, the people have lost their mediator. Remember what they were crying out to Samuel just a few chapters ago? Don't stop crying to the Lord for us. Please mediate for us. We need the help of the Lord. And here it's, we want a king. Go back to your city. They've lost their mediator. They have no one to stand before them on their behalf before God. And here Israel, in rejecting God as king, they are choosing to stand before God alone. In some sense, they're choosing to be their own kings. They're saying to Samuel, God gave you as a mediator. We don't want a mediator anymore. We don't need you to stand before God on our behalf. And God is warning them, okay, you're going to get what you want. You want to fight your own battles? I'm going to let you do that. You want to stand alone? I'm going to let you do that. You want to make decisions apart from my authority? I'm going to let you do that. Obey their voice. Obey their voice. Give them what they want. And they are left without a mediator. They are left without God. In some sense, they are left in this hellish state. Separated from God. That's what hell is. To be separated from God. And we make decision after decision after decision apart from God's rule, which are hellish decisions that ultimately lead us to hell, which is eternal separation from God under the judgment of God where there is no goodness of God there. And Israel is marching to hell here. Decision after decision after decision. That's why it's good news when God allows us to feel the pain of our hellish decisions. Some of you are here today and you are frustrated with things you did in your past. Some of you are here today and you live in guilt over your past. It, I shouldn't have said that. I was angry and I lashed out and I did that. That time in my life where I just wanted to, to be involved with, with that person, I wanted that lifestyle so bad and I wouldn't listen to those who loved me the most and cared the most for me. And, and I said, no, I don't want the rule of God. And you alienated people. And you made decision after decision after decision. And now you feel alone. And now you're to the point where you say, I have nothing left. 
For some of you who will hear what I'm saying today, you're in a great spot. Because you would say, I'm going through hell right now. And I would warn you, no, it gets worse. It gets worse without Jesus. Because as you make decision after Jesus, decision after decision after decision to reject His authority, you will end up being your own authority before God with no mediator to be sent away from God forever. And that's exactly what God does here. He says, Get the, imagine this. You, you go before God and you say, I won't sin. I won't sin. Give me sin. Give me sin. Give me sin. Give me sin. And finally God says, okay, here you go. How many of us have done that? Did it make you happy? Do you feel fulfilled, satisfied? No, the point here is there is only one king who is good. There is only one king who rules over you well and fulfills all of your hopes, all of your dreams, all of your desires. And he is committed to you no matter what. If you're a Christian here today, think about your life before Christ. Think about all the things you pursued. In high school, I'm just going to be the cool guy and I'm going to do the cool things and everybody's going to like me no matter what it costs, no matter what sort of sin I have to be involved with. In college, I'm just going to have fun. I don't want rules. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. And you just do what you want to do. And then you say, no, I, I, I want the American dream. You graduate, you pursue a career, and you say, I want money, and I want, I want the house, and I want the kids, and I want, two, I, I want the dog, and I, I want it all. And you pursue all of that with reckless abandonment, pushing others away, pushing others down, and you get what you want without Jesus. Did it make you happy? Think about that today. The one thing you want more than anything, even if it's not sinful, you'd say that's not sinful. What if God said, I'm going to give it to you without Jesus? Would you take it? Would you take the deal if it was on the table? You get it all, but not Jesus. That says something about our hearts. We, we want a king right now. We want something we can fill with our hands and put in our bank accounts. We want a king right now to rule over us. And what God is saying is that slavery, there's only one king who has fought your battles for you. And on the cross, he was rejected for your rejection. And he has been raised from the dead, accepted by God on your behalf. And he promises God will never leave you or forsake you. You see, there was another day when God obeyed the voice of the people. You see, what God does so often is He uses our rejection for our good, which is amazing, right? That He can take our rejection and then use it for our good. We can reject Him, feel the brunt, and repent, confess, and be restored. And He uses that. And there was another day He used our rejection for our good. Because we were crying out, we don't want this king. King of the Jews. <laughs> he saved others, he can't save himself. Look at him, weak, pathetic. And we cried out, crucify him, crucify him. 
He's not the kind of king we want. There's no power. There's no authority here. Crucify him. Crucify him. And he obeyed the voice of the people. And he says, okay, you can have a crucified Savior. Did you hear that? A crucified Savior. From your rejection, you get what you need. A crucified Savior. He leverages sin. He leverages darkness on the most sinful, darkest day of rejection for our good. He gives us the king we need despite our rejection. And that's the gospel. And that's the story of Israel. We read it over and over and we say, that's just the way they are. That's just the way they are. This chapter, this story, this story, this leader. Oh, we got Abraham and he's so awesome. Oh, he's a liar. Oh, now we have David and he's this great king. Oh, he commits adultery. Oh, we have Solomon. Well, he has 80-something wives. Oh my goodness, look at all these leaders and that's just the way we are. And it's a story of me and you. That's just the way we are. And yet he still gives us the king we need in Jesus. You see, we read this story and there seems to be some just frustration. People ask for a king. Samuel throws his hands up and walks away. But Jesus is the king that stays and fights for us. Defeats sin and death for us. He keeps pleading for us based on His blood, based on His righteousness. He never stops crying for us on our behalf to God based on what He's done for us. Jesus is a sovereign, sufficient, sinless Savior and He stands with you before God when you believe in Him, when you trust in Him, when you follow Him because that's just what He does. Let's pray.